0: Evidence and Answers. Critics are quick to point out apparent contradictions in the character and actions of God in the Bible. In the Old Testament, God orders the genocide of entire civilizations. He orders Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac and allows the practice of slavery. Is God a moral monster? How do we make sense of some of the God of the Old Testament? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author and teacher in Christian Apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Joining Pat today to answer these formidable challenges is Dr. Paul Copan, Professor of Philosophy and Ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. Well, is God a moral monster, or are there good answers to these challenges? Let's join Pat and his guest, Paul Copan, as they address these on this edition of Evidence and Answers.
1: You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we present the compelling evidence for our faith in Christ and we answer some of the toughest challenges Christians face when engaging their world for the cause of Jesus Christ. Well, is God a moral monster? How do we make sense of the Old Testament God who orders the wiping out of entire civilizations, who demands worship and sacrifice and oppresses women and endorses slavery? Well, with us today to address this issue is Dr. Paul Copan, Professor of Philosophy and Ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. Dr. Copan has a Ph.D. from Market University and is the author of a great book here on this subject titled, Is God a Moral Monster? Well, Dr. Copan, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you, Pat.
1: Well, Paul, this is a great book that addresses an issue many Christians as well as non-Christians have questions on. Tell us about the motivation for writing this book and the challenge that you're addressing here.
2: Well, one of the challenges that came up in recent years was after September 11th, a lot of writings came out basically reproaching religion for being the cause of all sorts of evils, like September 11. And so these, what are called new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, etc., they came out basically with their gloves off and wanting to put religion in its place, saying that it's not just Islam, it's all religion that's bad. And as part of their critique, there was a particular vehemence launched against the god of the old testament and so you have uh, somebody like a Richard Dawkins talking about how nasty the God of the Old Testament is. And so he just talks about how we don't want that kind of a God, that this God is a horrific moral picture. And so he basically, he says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So you get the idea. Not very keen on the depictions of God in the Old Testament. And again, we can add there are some challenging passages that we need to be grappling with, but a lot of the arguments that are being used are literally very dismissive, don't take context into consideration, don't take sin and God's anger into consideration, indeed a righteous wrath that also is part of the picture of God, not only the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. So with some of those assaults on really, uh, you know, the God of the Old Testament and some of the problems that often come with dealing with the, the Old Testament ethical challenges, I wanted to undertake a book that addressed some of these issues in a fair-minded way that t- tackled the scholarship and some of the criticisms and put them in a proper setting.
1: Yes, Paul. How effective do you think their arguments have been? I personally think they have been quite effective in the popular culture. We see this arguments raised in the media and in the popular culture, but how effective do you think these arguments have been from the new atheists?
2: Well, they are indeed making an impact, no question about it. And uh, for those who aren't willing to do their homework, so to speak, for people who are, instead a just content with sound bites, then they win rhetorical points. I'll give you an example. I went to hear one of these new atheists, Richard Dawkins, who came to speak a couple of years ago at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale. So he spoke on a scientific topic, and afterwards was Q&A, so I got up to ask Richard Dawkins a question. And I said, in your book, River Out of Eden, you say that we're all dancing to the music of our DNA. So there is no good or evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So my question to you is, if we are simply believing what our bodies are pumping into us, what our brain is basically telling us to believe, that our beliefs are produced by forces beyond our control, then how can you say that the naturalist or the atheist is more rational than the theist, since both of them have no control over the beliefs that they hold?
1: A well, great Richard Dawkins,
2: yeah, well, Richard Dawkins went on to say, well, it's because science works, and he went on to talk about Republicans and Democrats, and then he finished his, again, the non sequitur with this line. He said, and besides, rockets fly people to the moon, but religion flies planes into buildings. So he, you know, he said, so science you know, flies rockets to the moon, religion flies planes into buildings. That was his final argument. And the whole place erupted, probably about 3,000 people there. They thought, wow, yeah, this is a great argument. Well, of course, if Richard Dawkins is right, then those Muslims who flew their planes into buildings did so because, not because they had any control over themselves, but because they were dancing to the music of their DNA. Also, Richard Dawkins himself, it's kind of interesting that when he says that there's no good or evil in his book River Out of Eden, well, then how can he accuse God of being evil or bad since naturalism has no basis for talking about good or evil. There's only blind, pitiless indifference, as he says. But he's really just being hypocritical and playing to the crowd. On the one hand, he's saying that it's all just a matter of genes, but then on the other hand, he's saying but we do have responsibility for our actions, and that there really is good as well as evil. So which is it? You know, he, he wants to have it both ways. He wants to beat up on religion, uh, to which he's very hostile, but yet he wants to have his evolutionary picture in which there is no good or evil. So one of the things that I do is point out that there is a real hypocrisy that is going on here by, on the one hand, disputing or denying that evil exists at all, but then beating up on religion and saying that it's the root of all evil. In fact, he did a BBC documentary on religion as the root of all evil. Well, again, you're just left scratching your head saying, well, what's going on here?
1: Right, you know, and those are some great points you bring up, which is why I think this is a real fantastic book that you wrote here, Is God a Moral Monster? Well, let's get to the first issue. You know, is God an egomaniac? You know, why all this desire... For praise unto himself and desiring all this sacrifice unto himself. What's all that about? Is he some kind of egomaniac here?
2: <laughs> well, I think part of the bigger picture, what we need to see, is that when God is calling for worship, that is because, one, God is the worship-worthy creator, not because he's an egomaniac. If he were just, an ego, in a sense, just a regular egomaniac, then he would not be worthy of worship. So why does God call us to worship him? Well, because if we don't, we're only harming ourselves. To be worshiping God means that we are actually in touch with reality. We are in touch with a God who is our creator, as well as a God who is looking out for our best interests, as well as a God who is intrinsically good and worthy of worship. We're not talking about a God who just happened to create us, even though he's evil and therefore says, Worship me. No, a God who is some creator who is evil would not be worthy of worship. We're talking about a God who is good, who is worthy of worship. And so when we actually worship something other than God, then we actually bring harm to ourselves. We, bring, we do damage to ourselves because we are meant for relationship with God. And so when God calls us to worship Him, it's because God has our interests in mind. We need to remember, too, that when God is calling on us to worship Him, it's not as though God is somehow needy, that God somehow needs praise. God tells us in Psalm 50 that, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Or in Romans chapter 11, it says, who was ever given to God that God should repay him? God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our worship at all. But rather, God creates us, Father, Son, and Spirit, so that we might enter into the joy and love of being in the divine family. God, from eternity, has been loving and relational, and so God extends that relationship to his creatures that we can enter into relationship with God as well, so we can share in the joy of the divine family. That's really what it's about, and so God is, in commanding us to worship him, is basically keeping us from harm, is keeping us from damaging ourselves, is keeping us from going in directions that we were not meant to go.
1: So worship is for our sake, not so much his.
2: Well, it's not as though it's an either-or. I mean, it's not as though God needs it, but it is basically an acknowledgement of God's rightful place, God who is worship-worthy. So when we say for his sake, again, I want to emphasize that it's not as though God somehow needs it, but it is right and fitting, as the psalmist says, to sing praise to God. It's, It's fitting that we acknowledge God to be God, because anything else would be flying in the face of reality. But this also means that in acknowledging who God is and being rightly related to Him, we're actually functioning as we are designed to function. When we don't worship God, when our lives are out of sync with God, then we ourselves begin to malfunction.
1: And it seems like that's intrinsic in all beings to worship something.
2: Exactly right. Yeah, Bob Dylan in his song, you, know, you Gotta Serve Somebody, he says it may be the devil, but it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody, and, and that's indeed the case, that we are worshiping beings, and the question is, are you going to worship the being who is worthy of worship, or are you going to worship something that is not worthy of worship? As, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever.
1: And one of the things we have come to understand, believers in God and atheists, that without God, life is ultimately without meaning, a significance, or hope.
2: Oh, absolutely. That is, you know, some people say, well, you know, I don't need to believe in God to have meaning. I don't need to believe in God to have purpose. I can be kind to my neighbor and so forth. Well, the the more basic question is not, can we know wh- whether something is right or wrong, or can we find, you know, some sense of fulfillment? No, the more basic question is, one, how did we come to have value in the first place? If we've come from this string of valueless processes from the Big Bang until today, then why think that anything has meaning, objective meaning? I mean, do you want to say that Hitler found meaning and contentment in murdering Jews? Do we want to affirm that? Is there any sort of objective basis for affirming that human beings have a certain goal, that they ought to function in a certain way? And so when we talk about, you know, if, nat- well, if nature is all that there is, there is no way things ought to be. Things just are, kind of like what Richard Dawkins says, uh, that there is no good or evil. There is no design or purpose, nothing but, ju- nothing but blind, pitiless, indifference. So when, if nature is all that there is, there is no way things ought to be. There is no design plan. There is no ultimate purpose that we have you're right in pointing this out that atheism does not give us any sort of a basis for saying that you ought to live this way that human beings do have intrinsic dignity and worth that doesn't come from the resources of atheism or naturalism whereas theism especially trinitarian theism or christian theism we have a very strong basis for affirming the emergence of personhood the emergence of human beings having worth because they've been made in the image of god
1: Uh, so that's why worship keeps us in the proper perspective and understanding it in a joyful relationship and that's why god is so emphasizes so much the worship of himself for that's what we're designed as beings created in the image of this god
2: exactly right and you know it, it extends to the imagery of jealousy in the old testament some people say well god is you now that you know oprah winfrey for example talked about how, how she just couldn't stand a god who was jealous uh, that that just seems so belittling and beneath god that, you know, So she rejected the biblical God because of this idea of jealousy. Well, isn't it right for a husband to be jealous when a man is flirting with his wife? Of course it is. The problem is people can get jealous about silly and petty things that really reflect an insecurity, but when it comes to a relationship like marriage, if there's something that cuts in on that relationship, if there's something that threatens that, then jealousy is wholly and properly warranted. In the same way, when God is not being loved or sought or worshipped, and we're running after other things, well, God is jealous. Why? Because he, not because he's insecure, but rather because God is the one who alone is worship worthy. And so when we run after God's substitutes, then God is rightly jealous because it one is a denial of reality, namely who God is, and it brings harm to us as well
1: right and so you know that jealousy is motivated by his love for us
2: exactly right
1: yeah well what about this a story of abraham god calling him to sacrifice his son isaac to test him to see if abraham really loved god more than he loved isaac that seems to be an insecure god wanting to test this guy you know what is that all about
2: yeah that's again a lot of people raise this question they'll say How could a good God command this sort of a thing? That's just a horrendous command that God would issue to Abraham. And as we read in Genesis 22, it's kind of interesting that Abraham doesn't seem to... He kind of just steps into this and doesn't even question it. There's no... Again, we don't want to read between the lines here, but it seems like he just matter-of-factly responds to this sort of a thing. Of course, we, as, as we put ourselves in Abraham's place, we think, wow, this is, it must be agonizing. This must be so utterly traumatizing. Well, well, what's going on here? Well, a couple of things to keep in mind. Remember, first of all, that this, what's going on in Genesis 22 goes back to the call that God made to Abraham in chapter 12, where God tells him to, to go to a land that he's going to show him. Likewise, God calls Abraham now to go to a place that he's going to show him to offer the sacrifice. God promises in Genesis 12 that he is going to give him offspring, that through Abraham and his offspring, all the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So we have then kind of a a failure that comes through Ishmael, that God's purposes or, or methods, so to speak, are bypassed. And so Abraham takes Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, and thinks that, yeah, it's going to come through my body, but maybe not through Sarah's. And so he has a son through Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden to Sarah. And so Ishmael is born, and there is kind of a testing ground where there is a conflict that emerges when Ishmael, eventually after Isaac is born, starts to denigrate him, starts to humiliate, shame, dishonor him. And so Sarah finally has enough, and she tells Abraham that she wants them both out of the house. And of course, Abraham has become attached to Ishmael. and But God says, don't worry, I will make of Ishmael a great nation. So in chapter 17, we read of how they end up departing. But God assures Abraham that even though it looks like a bad idea, God is going to oversee the matter and that, that he should listen to Sarah. So you've gotten, in a sense, testing ground one here, that even though there is a precarious situation, God is in control here. And we're reminded, too, that God is going to be the one who brings about a nation out of not only Ishmael, but then we'll see out of Isaac. So when we have Isaac on the scene as the promised child, we are assured that God is at work, that God has brought about a miracle through Abraham's and Sarah's bodies, and that God is going to fulfill the promise. So Abraham has this in the background as he is going to sacrifice Isaac. He knows that Isaac is the promised child. He knows that it can't be Ishmael, even though Ishmael is going to become a great nation. It's not the one who is going to be the child of blessing. So he tells his servants as he goes to Mount Moriah, he says, we will go and worship, and we will return. Abraham is confident that Isaac is going to accompany him, even though he doesn't know how that's going to happen. So that's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 says, you know, Abraham believed that God was able to raise even the dead. In other words, he assumed that if it meant killing Isaac and God bringing him back to life, then that's how he would do it. So he was so confident that God was going to fulfill his promise because he had seen God's track record in the past and that God was going to make it work somehow. You see, when people assess this picture and they criticize the biblical record or they'll they'll say this is just so utterly immoral, God could not do this sort of a thing, well, they're assuming that Abraham is like any old Joe who maybe gets some sort of a revelation out of the blue and, maybe says, well, God told me to do this. It's something crazy. Well, remember, Abraham has had this track record with God. And so when we are, in a sense, putting ourselves in Abraham's place, it's not as though it is detached from the promises of God, from the workings of God in history. Just think of it this way. When, you know, just just assume, for example, that 18-year-olds are immune from death, that no matter what you do to them, you can bludgeon them, you can stab them, you can blow them up, but they immediately come back to life. Well, would this change, would this fact change the moral picture of how you treat an 18-year-old? I mean, you could play kind of a game called kill the 18-year-old, and you know, it could be a fun sort of thing rather than a horrific sort of thing because 18-year-olds are immune from death you know, or death for very long, they just come right back to life. So would that change the moral picture? Well, of course it would. And what i say is, in this example with Abraham, if there is a God who makes a promise, a God who has brought about fulfillment of his promise, bring this miracle child about, if there is a God, if that is part of the background picture to the command to Abraham to sacrifice his son, does this bigger picture not change the scenario? Of course it does. Abraham knows that God has been faithful so far and so when God is making this command it is with the awareness that God's promise to fulfill this blessing to Abraham is going to come true so that's part of the moral picture the kind of the moral part of the moral facts that we need to be dealing with so that's i think important for us to remember that we're dealing with more than just you can, in an everyday scenario, we're dealing with the historical backdrop of God's workings with Abraham and bringing about this promised child, Isaac.
1: Yes, you know, in stories like that, you got to take a look at the entire context of what's going on to really gain the insight and understanding of what's going on, as you just explained. Absolutely. Well, how about this one? It's got a moral monster here. Here's one you hear probably the most. How can God be moral when he orders the ethnic cleansing of entire civilizations, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, and others? How can God be a good and moral God when he orders the wiping out of civilizations like that?
2: Well, let's let's take a look at that. Well, for one, some people will call this ethnic cleansing. Well, for one thing, it certainly is not motivated by anything racial. I mean, the same language is actually used you know, when God says... You know, to utterly destroy the Canaanites. Well, we'll unpack that in a little bit. But God uses the same language in Jeremiah 25:9, where God says, "I will utterly destroy Judah, you know, through the Babylonians and leave their cities an everlasting desolation." Now we get to the end of the book, and we see that Judah is not utterly destroyed. That Judah is still around. That Judah still exists, and that there are lots of cities that are inhabited, even though there is a Babylonian exile. The temple is destroyed, and so forth. Basically, Judah is disabled you know, politically, militarily, religiously. That now this you know the curtain has closed on Judah as a significant power in the ancient Near East and now there is exile with Babylon and so forth. But it doesn't mean that they're utterly destroyed in terms of the Judahites are no more. But so that's important to keep in mind that God brings judgment on nations and it's not ethnically motivated, but it is morally and spiritually motivated. So that's an important part to keep in the picture. Secondly, what about that language of utterly destroy, leave alive nothing that breathes? We see that language in Deuteronomy 7 as well as in Deuteronomy 20. Well, is that actually what's going on? Well, in the ancient Near East, we see this kind of language going on quite a bit. In fact, in war texts, you might read of a military commander who has a narrow victory over his opponents, but he'll use the language of utterly destroying, of leaving alive nothing that breathes. In fact, one king, a Moabite king, who's actually mentioned in the scriptures, uh, King Misha, he says in one of his war texts, an inscription, that Israel is no more. Well, that certainly wasn't the case. Israel continued to exist, and if anything should be said, its Moab is no more. So there was this tendency to exaggerate or hyperbolize in the ancient Near East. Now, some people say, well, but doesn't it plainly say that, you know, leave alive nothing that breathes and so forth? Well, it does say that plainly, but you keep reading and you find out that Actually, there are plenty of people who are still alive. We're told that Joshua did all that Moses commanded when it says, you know, there were no survivors and so forth. But then you go on and you keep reading that there are plenty of survivors. In fact, you get to the end of the book of Joshua, and it talks about the nations that still remain among you. There are plenty of Canaanites who are there. In fact, you keep reading in Judges, which is a continuation of Joshua, the first two chapters talk about all these entrenched Canaanites. But yet Joshua did all that Moses commanded. Well, did he literally wipe them out? No, not at all. This
0: concludes part one of Pat's interview with Dr. Paul Copan. If you missed any part of this interview, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire interview and enjoy other great interviews and resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by today's show, would you please consider supporting this show and Pat's ministry in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org? I hope you'll be with us next week as we continue with part two of this interview with Dr. Paul Copan right here on Evidence and Answers.